Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by FedEx. Small and medium businesses need happy customers. That's why FedEx offers picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and over 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Hey, this is Stephen Dubner. You are about to hear a conversation with David Rubenstein, co-founder of the Carlyle Group, one of the most storied private equity firms in history. I spoke with Rubenstein in August for our six-part series, The Secret Life of a CEO. And now we are releasing, as special episodes like this one, our full, lightly edited interviews. Since we spoke, Rubenstein stepped down as co-CEO of Carlyle, but he's still executive chairman. He is a pretty remarkable human. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Stephen Dubner, is that David Rubenstein? It is. How do you do? So nice to talk to you. Thanks. My pleasure. Uh, I have to say, I've been watching a bunch of your TV interviews. Yes. I'm so impressed. I I, I don't mean to sound surprised, but um, your questions are good and you don't have notes. Well, I can explain why I don't use notes, but I can do it another time. Uh, Go ahead. I want to know. Well, um, if you have notes, you lose eye contact with the interviewee. And there's a human tendency. If you have notes in front of you, you will inevitably have your eye look at them for some point, even if you don't need to. And the second you do, you lose the eye contact with the person you're talking to, and you lose the intimacy of a conversation as opposed to an interview. You've just described the central conflict, which led me to do radio instead of TV. It's not that hard, but uh, I try to always intersperse some humor in it because I find that humor keeps people interested. And so I'm always looking every three or four questions for something that I can interject. Something might be somewhat humorous and that helps a bit, but okay. All right. First things first, are you a Steen or a Stein? Ruben Stein, but I don't care either way. All right. So if we could begin, just um, literally say your name and what you do. David Rubenstein. I am the uh, co-founder and the co-CEO of the Carlyle Group, which is a global private equity firm. Very good. Let's start with a little bit of um, personal background. First, uh, just tell us a little bit about growing up in Baltimore, your family, your schooling, et cetera, your aspirations, perhaps, et cetera. Okay. I am the only child of two parents who... Both dropped out of high school. My mother dropped out of high school to marry my father. My father dropped out of high school to go into the Marines. They were 20 and 17, respectively, when they married. Um, I was born more than nine months later. And I grew up in a blue-collar environment. My father worked for his entire career in the post office, never making more than $7,000 a year. So it was a very blue-collar Uh, kind of environment, and it was a very segregated environment in terms of religion. Uh, Mm -hmm. In Baltimore, the Jews had to live in one narrow area of Baltimore, more or less, and so I really didn't know anybody who wasn't Jewish until I was about 13, because everybody who lived around me was Jewish. And then I went to public high school 
uh, in Baltimore before I went away to college at Duke University. Mm -hmm. You went to Duke on a scholarship of some sort, yes? I did. It was not a basketball scholarship, I can assure you. <laughs> I was the only person in Duke's history who got cut from an intramural basketball team when only Ooh. four other people were on the team. <laughs> um, but I did uh -huh. go to Duke on a, on a scholarship, and um, I was an equal opportunity employer to colleges. Whoever gave me the biggest scholarship, that's where I was going, and Duke gave me the biggest scholarship. <laughs> Your mother, I understand, uh, desperately wanted you to become a dentist. That was her dream for you, yeah? Yes, my mother felt that the highest calling of mankind was to be called a doctor, and she thought mm. that uh, <laughs> being a dentist was better than being a doctor, even though you could still be called a doctor, because you didn't have weekend hours, and my mother had was a big consumer of dental services, so she always <laughs> thought it was a good uh, thing. I always said, well, what happens if I get arthritis in my fingers? My, my career will be gone. So I talked her out of my uh, having to go to dental school. Uh -huh. <laughs> now, I'm just curious, growing up in Jewish Baltimore, when you watch some of those um, Barry Levinson films, what's that experience like? Is it a, a warm nostalgia? Is there a bittersweet there? Just talk to me about that for a second. Well, Baltimore is a very family-oriented town. You know, if you were in the right families, uh, you did well. And if you were in the lower families, you probably weren't treated all that well. That My family was not in country clubs. My family didn't have the, the access to the wealth. So it was okay. And what you see in Barry Levinson's film is largely true. I think there was a lot of uh, elements of truth to that. It was, uh, you know, you didn't know any better at the time. And remember, when I was growing up in Baltimore, Baltimore was the eighth largest city in the United States with a population of about 930 9,000. Now it's not even in the top 20 in terms of population sizes. So it's shrunk a lot relative to other cities, and it's had a lot of problems over the years. Uh, today, it has a very high crime problem, very high, uh, you know, um, illiteracy problem, very high um, STD uh, uh, problem. So it, there's got a lot of challenges in Baltimore. I have been living outside of Baltimore for roughly 50 years, so I can't really claim to be a Baltimore expert anymore. When I grew up, like most people who grew up in an environment, you don't really know any better. You don't know any worse. You think this is what life is about. And so I accepted what was there. And, you know, I, like most children, I enjoyed my childhood. I just didn't realize until much later some of the things I didn't, uh, you know, have. Right. After Duke, you went to law school at the, UFC, the, at the, at the University of Chicago, uh, became a lawyer for a bit. You wound up uh, working in the Jimmy Carter White House, so, uh, which is where you met your uh, future wife. So describe that briefly, what you were both doing. Okay. I uh, had worked, uh, I had always wanted to work in the White House because I had been inspired by John Kennedy's inaugural address, giving back to the country. I was in the sixth grade when that speech was given. And so I always aspired to go back and give service to the country. I thought I could do it by working in the government and the White House seemed very appealing. I worked for Ted Sorensen, who had written that great speech for John Kennedy. And after I practiced law for a few years in New York, he helped me get a job, which ultimately led me to the Carter campaign. And in 1976, I joined that campaign. And Jimmy Carter was 33 points ahead of Gerald Ford when I joined. Mm -hmm. Carter won by one point. So Carter often <laughs> said, well, what was your contribution? But as you, we have observed over many, many years, people who work in White House staffs get their jobs because of working the campaign, not because of the merit. So at 27, I was the deputy domestic policy advisor to the president of the United States, a job I obviously wasn't qualified for. My wife um, worked at OMB. And her job was to uh, stop the spending of money. As a domestic policy person, I was in favor of spending of money. So we kind of uh, had our disputes at the time. Right. Now, I've read that you stayed late at your job to make sure that your memos, that your memos were on top of the president's briefing pile yes. until your future wife found out and got a Secret Service agent to put her memos on top. Is, there, is any of that actually true? It's, uh, for better or worse, completely true. 
Um, what happened was uh, I did work late at night. I wasn't married at the time. My life was just working in the White House. I couldn't imagine anything more pleasurable. So I just had a efficiency apartment near the White House. I would uh, work around the clock. I loved it. It wasn't it wasn't work. It was fun. But at, late at night, I would bring in a second crew of uh, um, secretaries to dictate memos or other things. And then at, then at the end of the day. 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, before I would go home, I would take into the president's private study my memos and bypass the staff system and put my memos on top. So when the president came in in the morning, he would read my memos first because they were on top of the inbox. And that had the advantage of bypassing everybody else's comments on my memos, which uh, was a way of beating the system. When my wife-to-be found out about it, she beat me one time staying later than me. Her memo went on top. I was very upset and didn't talk to her for several months because uh, she had beat me at my own game. Mm. Do you consider that sort of, I don't want to call it subterfuge quite, but strategic, uh, you know, positioning, is that the kind of advice you would give to young people trying to get ahead in the world today? It wouldn't be something I would tell my three children. It would be a good way to get ahead. Um, but I would say uh, sometimes you do things in life that uh, in hindsight with uh, wisdom and gray hair, you realize probably don't look so good. I and mean, everybody probably has some skeletons in their closet. I guess my skeleton is I went around the staff system at the White House. And for that, I probably won't get to heaven. But that's the mm-hmm. truth of what happened. <laughs> so unlike most uh, CEOs we've been interviewing who run companies like Facebook or PepsiCo or Microsoft, uh, I dare say that most listeners listeners haven't heard of uh, the Carlyle Group, despite its 160-some billion dollars in assets. And additionally, that most listeners have no idea how a private equity firm like yours actually works. So can you uh, explain it, please? The essence of it is this. Private equity is a phrase that is used to explain the investing of money, typically in a company that is privately owned i.e. it's not public, and you spend three to five years improving the company, incenting the managers to work harder, do more efficient things, and ultimately, after three or five years, you sell or otherwise liquefy the investment. And the appeal of this industry, and reason it's grown to be several trillion dollars under management now for around the world, is that this is a business which produces very high rates of return. So to make it simple, if you put your money in the bank, you probably get 0.1 or 0.2% interest. If you put your money in a bond, you might get 1% or 2% interest. If you put your money in a a stock market fund of some type, you might get 3 or 4 or 5% annual rate of return. Uh, In private equity, you're trying to get 20 or 30% annualized rates of return. Now, they've come down in recent years, but today, probably it's not unusual to think that people in my business can yield annualized net returns after fees of 15% or so per annum. So if you're getting 0.1 or 0.2% in a bank account and you're getting 15% from people like me, you're probably going to give us money. And so what we try to do is improve companies, make them more efficient, thereby making economies more efficient. It's now become a business that's all done all over the world, though it's only about 40 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also uh, shed its earlier name, the leveraged buyout business, which was seen seen as more, I guess, piratical or barbaric. Was that a uh, was that a, a conscious rebranding? Well, it was conscious, I think, in this sense. Um, initially, the business was called uh, Bootstrap. You were bootstrapping yourself. They were called bootstrap deals. Then they, that was seen as not very attractive name. So people then went to leveraged buyouts. Then the word leverage was probably seen as odious. So they went to the word management buyouts. Then the word buyouts was seen as odious. So they went to private equity. <laughs> I suspect at some point people will go with another name. But whatever you call it, the essence of it is you get people who are highly motivated because people in this business tend to get 20% of the profits on other people's money. They are highly motivated to 
do a good job and get high rates of return for their investors, and they get 20% of the profit. So it's a business that has spawned large firms like Blackstone, um, uh, Apollo, KKR, Carlyle, among others. And uh, it's a business that I think is now operated all over the world. One of those others, Bain, uh, which had employed uh, uh, Mitt Romney, uh, which he'd helped, which he'd helped start, Bain Capital. Uh, I, I believe that's right, right? Mitt Romney helped that's correct. start Bain Capital. Yeah. So it was uh, demonized and considered kind of odious during the uh, presidential campaign when he was running against Barack Obama, and private equity came to stand for. Uh, you know, rich investors uh, buying up uh, companies and, and killing off jobs in order to make them more efficient, more profitable. On the other hand, so that's one perception. On the other hand, a friend of mine who happens to be in private equity will argue that you guys are the guardian angels of the economy, that you'll swoop in with real money to pay for firms that nobody else wants. So uh, considering those are the two poles, how do you put it? Well, I hadn't heard before the guardian angel phrase, but now that I've heard it, I, I guess I like it. I probably should stop uh, using any other phrase and start using that one. I would say, like most things in life, it's somewhere in between. In the early days of private equity, when Mitt Romney was doing what he did and he was accused of, uh, fairly or unfairly, um, it was a much different industry. People tended to focus on getting the highest rates of return. They didn't worry about environmental concerns. They didn't worry about um, ESG or, or, or uh, social governance kinds of things. Today, the industry is one where environmental concerns, social governance concerns, tax concerns, all these kind of things are much more important. So Mitt Romney was accused of things that I think were probably somewhat unfair. He didn't respond because at times his polling data showed that anytime he mentioned the phrase private equity, his polling went down even if he had defended what he did. So he ultimately ignored it, maybe to his detriment. Um, today, I think private equity people think that while we're not perhaps guardian angels, we are providing a social service. And the social service is making companies more efficient. But more importantly than that, perhaps, the bulk of our investors are public pension funds. So they are policemen, firemen, teachers, and so forth. They are the largest investors through the various CalPERS of the world or New York Commons of the world. And so we think that we're doing good things, not only by making companies more efficient, but the real beneficiaries, the people getting 80% of the profits, very often are public pension funds. How many companies does Carlyle own at the moment? We own roughly 200 companies around the world on behalf of investors. So we own them on behalf of investors, about 110 or so of those in the United States and maybe about 90 of them outside the United States. Mm -hmm. And can you think of any category of good or service, whether it's clothing or restaurants or consulting or petrochemicals or software or weapons that Carlyle does not own? Yes, um, when I set up the firm with my partners, I said I didn't want to do certain things that I found antithetical to my own beliefs, perhaps. So I didn't want to invest in tobacco-related products. We've never done that. I didn't want to invest in firearms, guns. We've never done that. And I may have softened on this in recent years, but we never have and never wanted to initially invest in anything was alcohol-related. Um, I can understand that, that some people may disagree with that and view that wine or related other alcoholic products aren't as sinful as I may have thought at one point, but we haven't still done those. But those are three things we haven't done. What was your objection to alcohol? I mean, one thing that comes to mind is you do do a lot of business in the in the Middle East where alcohol is a, um, you know, has a kind of checkered access uh, history. Was it a business decision, personal? Well, I don't drink alcohol, so uh, maybe that was the principal uh, thing. I also felt that uh, 
you know, alcohol has its benefits, I suppose, I suppose but I, I felt that we might be criticized for investing in that area, and I didn't think that was something we needed to do. Um, probably my partners may have a different view on it, and we haven't really seen an attractive investment in that area, so maybe we would do it in the future. We certainly wouldn't do anything in tobacco, and we wouldn't do anything in firearms, and there may be other areas that we probably wouldn't do. But, uh, you know, I thought, for example, um, you know, one time we looked at a, a deal, an uh, industry that you would think would be okay, which is to do video um, into hotel rooms. You know, it's a nice business, but when you analyze it, it's about 98% pornographic, at least at the time we looked at this particular company. Maybe other things are different because it tends to be that a lot of things that are at least making money that are being broadcast into hotel rooms tend to have a, um, let's say, X rating attached to them. So I didn't feel comfortable with that. We pursued, We did not pursue that transaction. That reminds me of a, a comment you once made, I believe, speaking to uh, at Harvard Business School. You said you realize uh, you, you compared uh, private equity to sex. You said you realize there are certain things you shouldn't do, but the urge is there and you can't resist. Right. Can you give me an example? Not not the sex example. Thank right. you. But the private equity example of what you shouldn't do, but can't resist. Well, sometimes uh, prices may get very high and you get in a competitive bidding situation. And if you've ever been in an auction, you may know that, you know, you think, well, I'll just pay another 1%. Oh, I'll pay another 2%. I'll pay another 3%. And eventually you find you're paying more than you really initially thought you would do. So sometimes people in private equity tend to, you know, maybe pay a little bit more than they originally intended to to get the asset. And sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. So that's what I was trying to refer to. To when in that comment at, at, at that Harvard Business School, my also my view was that if you mentioned sex, sometimes the students who were probably falling asleep during my speech uh, <laughs> would wake up. And sure enough, many, many many people paid attention to that. In fact, more people remembered that comment than anything else I said at that speech. <laughs> so what you're talking about, especially with auctions, uh, has been canonized in the economics literature as, as the winner's curse. Um, and empirically, it, it turns out that um, it, it can be a pretty it can be a pretty bad deal. Um, I'm curious how. Now, over the nearly 30 years you, you and your partners have been doing this, I'm curious um, how your thinking has evolved in how you bid, how much you'll pay, and uh, what kind of things you've learned from past mistakes. Well, we've made plenty of mistakes, as everybody in this business has, and anybody that tells you they haven't made a mistake probably really isn't in the business or isn't being honest. Uh, I think generally uh, paying over more than you want to pay by 5%, even 10%, isn't generally the biggest sin. It's maybe paying more than 50% than what you should have paid. Um, but generally, the most important factor is getting a good business which can be improved by the good CEO. So if you buy a terrible business that can't be turned around, no CEO could turn around, that's probably a mistake. If you buy a really great business that already has a great CEO, there's probably not much value to add. So what you're looking for is a business that's okay but can be improved, and you've got a very good CEO who can improve it. And then if you do that and work through the system for five years or so, you'll probably get a reasonably good rate of return. Mm -hmm. So um, as I understand it, you don't sleep very much, four or five hours a night. You don't play golf. Um, as you've said, you don't drink alcohol. You don't smoke. Is that sort of singular, almost, um, well, it's not quite fair to call it a monastic or slavish devotion, I guess, but it sounds like it to, to the outside, from the outside. Is that kind of devotion necessary to run a company in the modern era, or is that just your set of personal preferences? Um, I hardly think it's necessary, and many people who are wine aficionados are great running 
uh, their companies, <laughs> and mm-hmm. they do a much better job than probably I'm doing. And many people who play golf do very well in running companies. So each to his own, and you know, the world is made up of many different people in terms of their tastes. In my own case, I just never wanted to drink alcohol. I, I concluded that with respect to golf, I took it up when I was nine. I quit when I was 10. I realized that it was too frustrating and too humiliating. And, in, and as an adult, I've concluded the same because I have the view that if I have a business meeting with somebody and they think that I'm competent and intelligent, um, if I were to go on the golf course, <laughs> I would destroy the illusion of competence and intelligence. So rather uh-huh. than destroy that illusion, I just say that I might play putt-putt with them, but nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious about the alcohol. In my experience, many people, if maybe not most, but many people who, who don't drink at all have had some kind of experience or history in their family, a bad experience or history. Is that the case in, in your in your case? I, I wouldn't say that. I would say that my parents were not alcoholic uh, consumers of any amount, but I did notice that on New Year's Eve, um, you know, my father might come back a little higher than I'd seen him before, but I think it was really a matter of discipline. Um, I was in a youth group, and the youth group, uh, uh, kind of head of it, the youth group was a local judge in Baltimore. He was a big believer in not drinking alcohol, and I guess I just, you know, adopted that as a way to either please him or to please my parents. And so I just never was a consumer. Uh, I, maybe I've missed many things in life by not consuming alcohol. I don't know. Yeah, and you have that in common with our current uh, president, Donald Trump. Yes, not a consumer of alcohol. Well, I hadn't thought about that comparison, but I guess you're correct. I think he doesn't drink alcohol either, but there are many other people other than President Trump and other than myself who have done things in life that it might be worth talking about that haven't uh, <laughs> tasted alcohol. So we're not the only two, I think. Right, right. All right. So um, let's get back to private equity generally for a minute. Um, how's business overall, both for your firm and firms like yours? A lot of people are saying the private equity industry, at least for the old school firms like yours, has peaked. Agree? No? I don't think it has peaked, uh, but it is very, very uh, popular right now because uh, we are pretty good in our industry in getting rates of return of, let's say, mid-net teen returns, let's say 15% net or something like that on average. And the top quartile funds might be doing 20% net or even higher. And so while we've been able to do this through good and bad times over 30 and 40 years, people have now concluded that we are probably a pretty good custodian of money. And so we are being given lots of money by investors from all over the world, sovereign wealth funds, high net worth individuals, uh, family offices, public pension funds, and so forth. So it's a pretty good time to raise money. It's expensive to invest it in terms of prices are not cheap right now. But at some point, prices will probably come down a bit. And you have a fair amount of money to invest. You can invest at lower prices. You'll probably be uh, doing reasonably well. So I would say the industry hasn't peaked. But I would also say that for the last 20 years, people have been saying the industry's peaked and it hasn't really peaked. So you just don't know. When I started Carlisle with my partners, there were 250 private equity firms in the entire world. Today, there are 6,555. So it's obviously been a growth business. Right. And you've pointed out that America leads the way in private equity, uh, whereas we've lost the leadership in, in some other industries. Why do you think that's the case? Private equity first started in a different view than uh, than buyouts. Private equity really started as venture capital in the early to mid-60s, and then another form of private equity called buyouts grew in the late 60s, early 70s. And they started in the United States, and because there were public pension funds here, which had been the biggest source of capital, it probably became an industry that took off the United States, and there was so much local money for it. Today, 83% 
of all private equity dollars invested in the world every year are still invested in basically Western Europe and the United States. So it's still a dominated uh, a business dominated by Western Europe and the United States. Now, 55% or so of the global economy, depending on how you measure GDP or purchase price parity, but let's say 55% as measured by purchase price parity of the world's GDP is in the emerging market, so-called. So if only um, 17% of the dollars invested in private equity are now going into the part of the economy that's 55%, that will probably catch up at some point. So the emerging markets will get more and more money from private equity uh, firms in the future. But today, the United States still dominates the business. And I'd say of the 10 greatest known venture firms in the world and the 10 largest private equity firms in the world, they're all based in the United States. Right. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, private equity generally acquires uh, established firms that need more money or better management, while VC firms generally fund startups. Um, If given the chance to start again, would you be more likely to opt for getting in on the startup um, game just because of the dynamism and excitement or... Um, knowing that it's turned out pretty well for you on the PE route, would you choose that one? I don't think I have the skill set in venture capital. I passed on Facebook when Mark Zuckerberg was in college, and my now son-in-law told me about this opportunity to invest in uh, his classmate's company. And I had a chance to be an early owner of Amazon and and effectively turn it down. So I would say I probably didn't have the skill set to monitor these good technologies that were going to take off. So on the whole, I think I probably made the right decision because uh, it's worked out reasonably well for the investors of Carlisle and for me and my partners. But sure, it's always tempting to think that venture capital is going to be producing more Facebooks and Googles and um, and companies like that. But it's a tough, tough business. In private equity, on average, obviously there's some exceptions, probably 90% of buyouts will make money, something like that. And in venture capital, probably 90% of the deals will not make money. So it's, uh, it's a tougher business in many ways. Mm-hmm. Talk for just a minute about um, running a company and the difference, especially with a startup like a Facebook, Um, And as it becomes successful, maybe Uber is a a more interesting company to talk about now since they're going through a lot of leadership upheaval. It's always struck me and I've always heard from people who start businesses that the kind of energy and dynamism and maybe attitude that it takes to start a firm uh, is very different from the energy and dynamism and attitude of what it takes to to run an established firm. Can you talk about that for a minute? Sure. Um, 99.9% of companies started in the United States fail. So it's very few companies that actually get to be anywhere after one or two years. Most companies don't make it. Now, you read about the Silicon Valley successes, but you hear about the the Ubers and the companies like that, but there's so many that don't make it. So to make those companies work, you need a CEO who's driven or founding partners who are driven, who are maniacal, who don't want to do anything but eat and sleep and and work in the company. And you therefore have to have a mindset of of walking through walls. And people will tell you when you're starting Uber or Google or Microsoft or Facebook, this can't be done. Well, if you accept that, then you're going to fail. You have to be able to ignore what people tell you and ignore conventional wisdom. And then if you're fortunate, you might get to the very top, but very few get to the top. Uh, Running companies is different than getting them off the ground. I think it's much harder to get them off the ground. Running is not easy, but when you run a company that's more mature, you can you have more people who are willing to support you, more people willing to work with you, more people willing to give you money. Getting that company off the ground the first two or three years is extremely difficult. What about when the startup CEO wants to stay and plainly isn't the right person for the job? You're obviously in a position where you deal with that all the time. How do you handle that? 
Well, there's no easy uh, prescription if you have a CEO who started the company and he or she doesn't want to go, but he or she may not have the skill set to take it to the next level. So it can be a very complicated conversation. Typically, uh, outside investors will, may have the majority uh, voting stake or the majority of the board by years three or four, and they might have the ability to vote out the CEO, but it's not pleasant. So sometimes you give the CEO different responsibilities. In some cases, obviously, the CEO leaves, and sometimes they still own a big stake in the company, even though they're not there. But generally, the companies that are going to make it, with some exceptions, are the companies that have a CEO founder who has driven the company for the first couple years and really driven it to success. And then maybe after three years, three, four, or five, you bring in a CEO who's better at managing a more mature company than somebody who's getting it uh, off the ground. Some of the greatest managers of uh, companies in the world are not great entrepreneurs. And some great entrepreneurs are not really good at managing companies. So it's a rare person like Bill Gates, who was an entrepreneur and also was a very effective CEO for many, many years. That's relatively rare. Do you think, however, um, that the high-profile nature of those uh, relatively few excellent founder CEOs, you mentioned Bill Gates, you know, you could say Mark Zuckerberg at this point, you could say Jeff Bezos at this point, you could right. say Steve Jobs while he was alive. Because they're so prominent, do you think they give a kind of skewed, anomalous view of what the CEO should be? In other words, it should be the founder, they're the, or at least it, it would be best if it were the founder? Well, clearly, they get all the attention, and therefore, they are role models for people. So it does give people something to aspire to. But probably most companies five years into the formation of the company are not being run by the person who conceived of the company and might have started it. It's just because it's a different skill set, and, and, and very few people have the skill set that Jeff Bezos exhibited or Bill Gates exhibited to both be the entrepreneur, the driving force at the beginning, and the person who can run the company when it's relatively mature. It just usually doesn't happen. Give me a little more detail on your passing on Facebook investment. Sure. Um, my uh, oldest daughter went to Harvard College. Uh, she met a young man there. Um, she's now married to him. They're uh, very happily married. I think they're now six or seven years married. And at the time, uh, when they were dating for the first year or so, um, this son-in-law-to-be knew who I was, and I was in the investment world. And he told me that a classmate of his at Phillips Exeter and a classmate of his at Harvard College was dropping out of Harvard to start a new company, and it was going to do something relating to bringing people together. It was called Facebook, and he showed me some materials about it and how it was working. And it was essentially, at the time, I thought, more or less a dating service for kids in college. And as I described, as it was described to me, I said, look, I don't really think this was going to get anywhere. I've seen college kind of companies before, and I'm pretty experienced at looking at them. This is not going anywhere. <laughs> so he was trying to raise $10 million. Today, that $10 million is probably worth about $30 billion. I had a similar experience with Jeff Bezos. When Jeff Bezos was starting his company, he didn't really have very much money. He was going to sell books over the internet. He needed a bibliography of books that were printed on the internet. One of our companies, Baker & Taylor, um, had the biggest bibliography that was uh, in, of books in print, and he came to the company and said that he would like to rent that bibliography, and he didn't have much cash, but he would give one-third of his company for the use of the bibliography. Our salesman turned it down and said, no, we want cash. At one point, I realized that probably wasn't a good idea. I went out to see Jeff Bezos and said, you know, 
I think your company's going to go public, and you, Jeff, one day are going to be worth two hundred or three hundred million dollars. He said, "I'll never be worth that much, um, but I, I and I don't really um, wouldn't give you one third of the company more because I don't need you as much. But I, I, you were helpful to me in the beginning, so we'll give you one percent of the company now, not a third. And we we sold it at the IPO. Today, it's probably worth about four and a half billion dollars. Wow. Um, do you regret, or how much do you regret those decisions, or are you not a regretful type? Um, I am a regretful type. Uh, one of my partners never looks back. I always look back. So I regret it because I just realized how stupid I was. Uh, I could have maybe been an investor in Facebook, um, and I could have uh, owned a lot of stock in uh, in um, in, in uh, Amazon. So here, I look back. Just like fishermen, uh, I like to talk about the ones that get away. I guess I like to talk about the deals that got away. Hmm. But on the other hand, you know, obviously counterfactuals are always hard to, you know, imagine or at least measure. And I'm guessing there are a lot of times when you did say no, where it turned out to be an incredibly valuable no. Yeah. I mean, do you do you entertain those in your regret model as well? Sometimes we have not done deals that we wanted to do. We lost out uh, other people and it turned out those deals did not work out. Yes. Um, and sometimes we have... Um, done deals that we thought were going to be great, and they didn't work out as great as we thought. You know, that's the deals world, and, um, you know, you live with uh, your deals. But generally, those people who are, do reasonably well are people that, you know, probably make money seven, eight, nine times out of ten, and, and generally we've had a pretty good average in doing that, so that's why we've been successful. The latest figures I've seen put Carlisle uh, Global employees at a little over 1,500. Is that about right? We have about 1,500 employees in the core company, but the companies we, we own, the 210 companies or so, or 100, 200 companies or so we own, about 110 in the United States, they probably employ close to a million people. Very good. And then I've uh, read a recent estimate that Carlyle Group assets, uh, all in companies it owns, uh, are invested in are about $162 billion. Is that up to date and or It's about $170 billion right now, something like that. So we're, we're managing assets of about $170 billion, yes. Gotcha. So if that were, uh, if you were a country and that were your GDP, that would put you around the top 60 globally, behind Qatar but ahead of Kuwait. So I'm curious, what kind of um, opportunities and challenges come with being so big Clearly, when you're big, you can make enemies. And for a while, um, people did uh, parody, parody us. Um, and for a while, when we had some political people associated with us uh, years ago, uh, former President Bush 41 or Jim Baker, we were seen as being politically powerful and people attributed various things to us that we didn't have in terms of political power and so forth. Um, you know, clearly, when you get to be wealthy, and you get to be big, you, you do um, make some people nervous that maybe you're going to do something they wouldn't like. So it's very rare to have wealthy companies be loved by everybody. It's very rare to have wealthy people be loved by everybody. Now, clearly, some of the wealthy people today are very involved in philanthropy, and they're you know more popular than they used to be. But you know, for a while, um, wealth has historically made the average person nervous. Mm -hmm. You uh, personally are have been an innovator and I guess maybe a world leader at recruiting um, rainmakers or at least partners uh, who have recently left public office, former cabinet secretaries, the occasional president, and so on. Talk right. about uh, and we know that comes from your um, you know having worked in white at, in the White House and in DC. And from what I understand, you're the first private equity firm to have kind of married the the concept of private equity with, uh, you know, the, the D.C. status uh, uh, 
uh, abilities well, and power. When we were very young, we were modest in size, 1989, I think it was. Frank Carlucci was leaving as Secretary of Defense under President Reagan. We recruited him to be a partner in our firm. Um, when George Herbert Walker Bush lost his election in 1992 to, um, to uh, Bill Clinton, um, Jim Baker joined us. He was departing then as, as uh, Secretary of State. And then subsequently as an advisor to us, George Herbert Walker Bush joined us. And at one point, John Major was an advisor to us. And we were then very unknown. By having those people, people got to know us. Uh, nobody would give us money if we didn't know what we were doing, but there's no doubt that they probably would go to a dinner uh, where Jim Baker was going to speak rather than a dinner where David Rubenstein was going to speak. Today, as we become very well known, our track record is pretty robust after 30 years, we don't really uh, recruit people like that anymore. Not that those aren't good people and not that they didn't do very good things for us, but we don't really need to do that to open doors anymore or to have people pay attention to us. Our track record really speaks for itself. So we did pioneer that. And now I find interestingly that other firms are doing it when we don't do it anymore. So some other firms with whom we compete do bring in very senior government people, but we just have uh, not done that so much anymore. So when's the last time you hired someone who we, who someone like me, I might consider, you know, politically connected? It's been decades because uh, we, we kind of got out of that business. We were heavily criticized for it, in part because, for example, when George Herbert Walker Bush was part of our firm, um, part as an advisor, I should say, his son was president of the United States, and people thought that was complicated, and people thought we were part of the Bush administration, and we weren't, and so forth. So, you know, we have brought in people from government, but they aren't people who have brand um you know, household names. So uh, maybe four years ago or so, we brought in Julius Janikowski, who was chairman of the FCC, to help in our uh, communication investment business. But nobody would really think that he's a, a political force uh, so much as a telecommunication knowledgeable person. And how was it that you as a lifelong Dem happened to bring in all these Republicans? Well, um, I'm in business, and I don't think that I judge people whether Democrat or Republican. I actually did work in, for, in, the, in the White House for President Carter, but I have stayed out of politics since then. I don't give money to politicians. I give away a lot of money, but not to, to political campaigns. So I completely divorced myself from that, and I'm not involved in anybody's campaigns. I don't support any candidates, so forth. So I kind of view myself as apolitical, and because of the non um, uh, Carlisle-related things I'm involved with. I'm the chairman of the Kennedy Center, chairman of the Smithsonian. Um, I think it's best to be apolitical. So I stay out of politics. But I you know, will, would be willing to recruit people who are either Democratic or Republican. I'm not really that focused on their political affiliation. Mm -hmm. You do give away a lot of money. You do sit on uh, a lot of boards. By my count, it's approximately one million boards that you sit on. It's absolutely <laughs> remarkable. Not quite that many, but... Um, and it strikes me that because of your business and your philanthropy and your personality that you, David Rubenstein, may personally know more prominent people, at least in business and maybe in politics, than just about anyone else in the world. Uh, how right or wrong am I on that? There are many people whose names are much better known than mine, and they can get anybody on the phone. If Bill Gates calls anybody, he's going to get that person on the phone. Jeff Bezos is going to call anybody, they're going to get that person on the phone. Barack Obama calls anybody, he's going to get that person on the phone. I'm not anywhere near that level. I do serve on a lot of nonprofit boards. I have been doing what I'm doing for 30 years, and I've been running around the world meeting investors for some 30 years. I chair a number of boards. I, I 
have my own, uh, you know, TV talk show a bit. And so people see that. And I, um, you know, get involved with uh, a lot of causes that I think are important to the country. But I would say there are certainly many, many people who are better um, connected than I am. But I do know many people that I am proud to say are friends of mine or people that I uh, respect. I've read that your net worth is a little north of two and a half billion dollars. Uh, is that accurate if you care to confirm or not? You know, I've never calculated it. I see what Forbes says. I, you know, it's not up to me to say what it is. It's, it's more than I ever dreamed I would have. I have signed the giving pledge. I was one of the first 40 people to sign it, the only person initially in private equity. And I'm committed to giving away not half of the money, as the giving pledge um, suggests that people do, but to giving it all away. So whatever it is, I will give it away. You've recently joined the Harvard Corporation. Congratulations on that. Um, Thank you. It's an extraordinarily um, historic and influential uh, governing body. I want to ask you a few questions about it and Harvard. Um, First of all, the Harvard Management Company, which uh, runs the endowment, um, has famously underperformed in recent years and and underwent a pretty big shakeup. First of all, I'm just curious, is that uh, is that part of your purview as a corporation member? Is that part of the reason you came were brought well, in? Let me let me know. Let me ask answer it this way. First, I I'm a graduate of Duke and I and the University of Chicago Law School. I didn't go to Harvard. Um, and I, for the last 12 years, I've been on the Duke University board and I've chaired the board for the last four years. My term was up. And as my term was up, um, there was a vacancy on the Harvard Corporation board. I did know Drew Faust. I'd done a number of things at Harvard. And she asked, I guess, with the consent of the others on the board, if I would join the board. So I've only been to one meeting so far. But um, I don't think I was brought on because of financial considerations, because the Harvard Management Company is run separately. It does report to the Harvard Corporation, but it's it wasn't something that I'm going to serve on the board of the Harvard Management Company. So I, I think they probably brought me on perhaps because I have some experience in higher education at Duke. And I've also served on the board of Johns Hopkins. And I currently serve on the board of University of Chicago as well. And I've been pretty involved at Harvard in a number of areas, the Kennedy School in particular. So maybe those are the reasons. And I chair the Harvard Global Advisory Council. So that's probably the reason they put me on. Not so much because of my financial skills, I think. I don't mean to disparage at all your your education education board bona fides, um, but if I were Harvard and if I were looking at the performance of my uh, endowment uh, investment, and I would think, well, what kind of person would I most like to have sit on the Harvard Corporation board who could at least help us get a sense of, you know, what we should be trying to accomplish here? We're we're the most famous and the biggest endowment and university in, in the world, and you know, there, there's been a period of a couple of years here where the reputation of Harvard itself took a big hit because of the endowment performance. So I, I, I'm not asking you to ascribe uh, uh, motivations to them per se, but I would just think that that would make you a valuable addition um, beyond, you know, the educational uh, involvement. Well, maybe so. I, I'm not sure exactly why they asked me to serve on it, but I am not on the Harvard management uh, company board. There are, uh, you know, people um, from Harvard Corporation board who ha- who do serve or have served on that board. I- I'm just not one of them. I-, I-, I obviously have some investment background, but again, the Harvard Management Company is spending most of its money not in the area that I know much most about. I mean, in other words, most of the money invested by Harvard Management Company is probably in fixed income or public equities. And while a fair percentage is in private equity, that's not the bulk of it. So if you really wanted to get somebody that was an investment expert, you probably would get somebody that knows much more about non-private equity areas. 
Uh, I know you've known Larry Summers, I gather, quite well for quite a while. When he was removed as president of Harvard a little over 10 years ago now, that was, I believe, the Harvard Corporation board that that actually makes that that call. Um, tell us with some retrospect, Noah, and considering that uh, Professor Summers is still at Harvard, uh, tell us what you know about that situation, why he was let go, the reasons that were publicly stated at the time, and perhaps other reasons that in, in retrospect were, um, were influential. I was not involved at Harvard at the time. I obviously watched it from afar, as many people did. It seemed as if the faculty had lost confidence in Larry, and fairly or not, I think he felt that that uh, time it was probably best to, to, to go. But he um, did a lot at Harvard during that period of time, I think is valuable. And he remains a, a university professor at Harvard and still teaches uh, at the Kennedy School, among other things that he does at Harvard. And so while it was a tumultuous time, I think there were some things that he did that, that, that benefited Harvard. And so um, I do think that uh, uh, in hindsight, uh, Larry uh, contributed a fair bit to Harvard. And it, obviously he upset some people there. But I think his successor has solved many of the problems that Larry identified, and she's done a spectacular job. job. Uh, Drew Faust has been president for about 10-plus years, and uh, during that period of time, she's really spectacularly uh, improved many things at Harvard. And now she, of course, has uh, announced that she'll be stepping down in she about has. a year, She'll I be guess, stepping yeah. down mm-hmm. at the end of this year, academic year. If it had been up to you, would you have kept Larry Summers in the post? I can't. I wasn't on the board. I didn't have all the facts. I just I can't possibly comment on that in an intelligent way. Coming up after the break, what being a CEO teaches you about life. What you have to do as a CEO is persuade other people to do what you want. And that's what life is all about, persuading other people to do what you want. Economics Radio is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example, combining assertive on-road performance with signature Range Rover refinement and commanding all-terrain capability. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable yet. Range Rover Sport redefines sporting luxury, an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. Combining dynamic sporting personality with the peerless refinement you expect, Range Rover Sport communicates power, performance, and agility. Advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Redfin. Whether you need to buy or sell a home or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin has got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even the same day with a local Redfin agent. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents get you the best price possible for your home. 
With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Amica Insurance. Amica Insurance is all about empathy. They know your auto, home, and life insurance are more than just policies. Home insurance is about protecting the life you've built. Auto insurance is there to protect you on the road ahead. That's why Amica takes a consultative approach to help protect what matters most to you. They are a customer-owned insurance company that puts your needs first, and their representatives are available 24-7 for claim-related matters. As Amica says, empathy is our best policy. Back to our conversation now with David Rubenstein, co-founder and longtime co-CEO of The Carlyle Group. Okay, so you are uh, one of the co-CEOs of a firm whose business is essentially making sure that the firms you acquire have good CEOs, which uh, means that you must know a boatload about what makes someone a a good CEO or a bad one. So I'd like you to tell us everything you know with specifics, please. I think a good CEO is somebody that knows how to be a leader rather than a follower, somebody that has convictions about what he or she wants to do, somebody who's reasonably intelligent, you don't need to be a genius, but reasonably intelligent, somebody that's very hardworking, somebody that recognizes that they are there to make the company more valuable, somebody knows how to motivate people, somebody that knows how to deal with customers as well as employees. You know, there's some people that have skill sets that are enable them to be good COs, and some people don't. Sometimes the smartest person in the room is not going to be a good CEO. Sometimes a person who may not be the smartest in the room may have the skill set to be a good CEO. And it's, I won't say it's like Potter Stewart's definition of pornography. You know it when you see it. But when you um, meet somebody and you talk to them for a while, you can tell whether he or she is likely to be a good CEO. And I would say most cases, um, you know, we, we get that right. Sometimes we get that wrong. Mm-hmm. If there's one characteristic that's relatively rare in the general population, but fairly common among CEOs, what would it be? Persistence. Um, to get something done anywhere, you have to be persistent. People are always going to tell you no. And if you take no for an answer, you might be a very nice person. People might like you, but you won't be probably that successful. Persistence, persistence, persistence. That's so much of the game of being a CEO. I'd say hard work is another major factor. And the ability to lead, the ability to get people inspired, to get people to want to walk through walls for you and with you. That's what you really need. Talk a little bit more about that ability to lead. I think we've all heard a ton of uh, leadership scholarship, and I put quotes around scholarship because a lot of it is not very empirical. A lot of it is kind of, to me, it seems kind of woo-woo talk um, because for every example that's offered about if you just do this, you'll be a good leader. There's a counterexample of if you just do that, you'll be a good leader. So what does that mean? Give me some examples of what ability to lead actually looks like and how it can be measured. Well, um, the way I like to talk about it is this. Um, There was a man named Richard Neustadt, a professor at Harvard, who who once wrote a book called The um, Presidential Power. And it was about the presidency of the United States. And he was pointing out that the president doesn't really have all those powers that you might think. 
that the president has to do is persuade people. And that's the essence of the president's leadership. And that, to some extent, is the true of CEOs. While they have, might have some more authority than a president of the United States, president of the United States can't fire people as readily as he or she might think. Uh, CEOs maybe can do so. But what you have to do as a CEO is persuade other people to do what you want. And, of course, that's what life is all about, persuading other people to do what you want. And I like to say there are three ways of doing it. One is you persuade people by your oral communications, learning how to speak, learning how to say things that persuade people to do what you want. Second is learning how to write, writing a memo or letters or other kind of written communications, persuading people what you want to do. And the third and the most effective is leading by example. And the example I like to cite, not in a CEO context, is George Washington at Valley Forge. He didn't have to stay with his troops at Valley Forge during that winter, that cold winter, but he stayed with his troops and he led them by showing by example that he was willing to put up with the cold and the, and the, the terrible times just like they were, even though he didn't need to. And I think that's kind of inspired his troops. And I think what CEOs have to do to be effective is lead by example. If you say you want people to work hard, work hard yourself. If you say you want people to cut expenses, cut expenses yourself. If you want people to um, think of new ideas, come up with new ideas yourself. That's what you have to do. Um, on those three points you just made, let's put aside for a moment the the leading by example. On the writing and the persuasion, talk about yourself and as a CEO, where how you've learned to do those two things well. What kind of either guides you've had, mentors, etc. Okay, talking about talking, um, I would say that while I did debating in high school and college, I wouldn't say I was an experienced speaker. When I worked in the White House, I did some speaking on behalf of the president, but nobody was probably inspired by my <laughs> uh, discussions, and therefore Carter did not get reelected. But I found when I went into the business world that I had to make presentations to investors, and one of my jobs at Carlisle was to raise money. So I would spend you know, a large part of my time running around the world trying to persuade people, and often one of the ways of doing that was making speeches at conferences or other kinds of things. And as people began to listen to me, they liked what I said, I get more and more invitations. And so gradually I became a relatively accomplished speaker. I'm not uh, exactly uh, the most accomplished, but I do make several hundred speeches a year. And as a result of that, I probably am more experienced at doing that than other people are. And that's probably been a skill set that I've developed. In terms of writing, I love writing, though I haven't published any books or anything, but I love to write, I guess, and by using the memo form or internal communications, I like to you know, put my thoughts out in a relatively clear way. And I, I would say that that's a very good skill to have if you can. I think writing in tweets and writing in um, uh, email messages doesn't really give you the ability to write that well. So I try, I don't do tweeting and I try not to communicate in such a short manner that you really can't convey a serious detailed thought. I often wonder where the English language would be today if uh, William Shakespeare lived in a time of tweeting. Would he abandon writing in uh, the format that he did uh, and invent so the words that he did if he had to you know, listen to the 140-syllable uh, tweet <laughs> format? I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, time will tell. I understand you're a speed reader and read five or six books a week and 10 newspapers a day. Is that true? I, I try to read two books a week. Um, and I try to read 100 books a year. And uh, now, it's, it's easy to say, well, that's a lot to do, and how do you do that? But the truth is, I'm often reading books in subjects that I know something about, so it's not that complicated. If I had to read physics textbooks um, or neurosurgery textbooks, I wouldn't be reading two of them a week. But I tend to read uh, biographies, uh, books about politics, and books about business. And um, to make me 
want to read the books and maybe to force me to need it because I maybe need a, a prod, I have arranged a number of programs where I um, have to read a book in order to be able to do what I want to do. So, for example, I wanted to educate members of Congress more about history. So I started a program at the Library of Congress where only members of Congress can attend. I um, you know, underwrite a dinner and a, and a cocktail party where members of Congress from both parties come, and I interview a great American historian, so Doris Kearns Goodwin, David McCullough, people like that. And members of Congress really love to learn about history, so I do the interview there, but I have to read the book. Um, I also am the principal underwriter and I guess the co-chairman of something called the National Book Festival, which the Library of Congress runs every year. We're having it in Labor Day every year. And Labor Day, um, we typically have uh, 200,000 people coming for free, and we have about 125 authors. Uh, at the most recent one that's coming up, but by the time this is broadcast, it will have occurred, um, I will interview four authors on in one day. So I had to read four books, and so I read those four books, and I'm now prepared to, to, to interview them. But I use these devices as a way of forcing me to read books, maybe, just because if I know I have to read the book to interview the author, I will do it. If I didn't have these devices, maybe I wouldn't be able to read two books a week, or I wouldn't read two books a week. Mm. Let me ask you just one more thing about these uh, bipartisan dinner salons that you run at the Library of Congress. Uh, right? It's the Library of Congress, you said? It yes. is. The Library of Congress yeah, is where we really hold amazing, them. Amazing. Yes. Yeah. An amazing facility. So those are it's for senators and Congress people. Yes, and it's correct, and it's, and it's bipartisan. I'm I'm just curious. Um, obviously and famously, uh, the last 15 years or so have been very partisan in D.C. I'm curious if you can point to any um, actual. Uh, bipartisan comedy, having comedy, C-O-M-I-T-Y, yes. not E-D-Y, coming out of your salon and whether it's produced any benefits? I can point to a lot of bipartisan comedy, C-O-M-E-D-Y, <laughs> but I don't know about C-O-M-I-T-Y. But um, to answer your question, no, I, I cannot. Um, we've had the dinners now for about three years and probably have had about 30 or so or, or more of these dinners. Members of Congress tell me they enjoy it because they get to sit with people from the opposite party in the opposite house. There's no press. Nobody can see what they say or do, and therefore they don't have the kind of scrutiny that maybe they would have if the press was there and they were forced to ask certain questions or forced to handle things a certain way. So I, I can't tell you that anybody's called me up and said, we wouldn't have passed this legislation without these dinners. But I can tell you that members of Congress are quite pleased with it and I've received a letter from uh, maybe a 200 or so members of the House of Representatives thanking me for, for doing this. And so I think, who knows whether you really make a contribution to anything you do in life, but I think that maybe bringing these members together to learn about history, even if they don't uh, eliminate their, bi their, their partisan concerns, is, is, is a useful thing. Right. Let's talk about Donald Trump uh, for a minute. First of all, how much interaction have you had with him over time and since he's become president? I would say modest, relatively speaking. I um, have, in years when my parents were alive, um, when we would have a birthday party or a celebration for them, uh, because they lived in West Palm Beach area, uh, sometimes we would do it at Mar-a-Lago. It's um, I, I, Somebody who was a member would let me use the facilities, and so I, I did it a couple of times. And so sometimes he was there, and I would shake his hand, but I was never in business with him. Um, as the president of the Economic Club of Washington, before I knew he was going to run for president, I invited him to come down and let me interview him. He came down. He liked the interview a great deal. He told me in the green room he was going to run for president. I told him, look, I know a lot about politics. I've been around the city. You have no chance of being elected president. Um, so fortunately, from his point of view, he didn't listen. Um, since he 
became president, I did go to see him during the transition and said that I thought one of the things he should try to do is touch the symbols of our country, go visit the um, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, go visit Arlington, go visit the Declaration of Independence, go visit the Magna Carta, go visit uh, the Supreme Court, go visit some of the most important museums that he hadn't in his previous life had that much time to, to really uh, spend doing. And I did, as the chairman of the Smithsonian, with the, with the uh, secretary of the Smithsonian, David Scorton, and with Lonnie Bunch, who built the museum, I gave him a tour of the African American History and Culture Museum, which the Smithsonian um, has been responsible for. And I did do that with him. Um, and I've seen him on a couple other occasions, but I wouldn't say that I'm an intimate with his and uh, of his, and I wouldn't say that I have that much influence, if any influence, with him. Um, and it sounds like he didn't take your advice too much on visiting all those national monuments, including, we should say, the Magna Carta is one that you bought. It's the copy that you bought and loaned to the correct. National Archives, yes? Yeah. Well, he'll get to it, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how, uh, I'll, I'll ask you the, the Passover question, how is this White House different from all other White Houses in your estimation thus far? Well, this is a different White House in many respects. I think that uh, many of the people in the White House did not really know the president that well or weren't political supporters of his. Uh, that's a bit different. Uh, some people just really met him during the transition. Uh, secondly, um, I would say that uh, by this time, many administrations have gotten, you know, um, some of their initial sea legs uh, um, I'd, I'd say more stabilized. I think this administration still has some challenges that it needs to deal with. But, you know, every administration, the Carter administration that I served in, others all have problems in the first year or so getting uh, things organized the way they want to get them organized. Um, but clearly, um, this administration uh, has some challenges in, in front of it. And, um, as an American, I hope that they can meet these challenges. Imagine for a moment that uh, some years ago, the Carlyle Group had acquired the Trump Organization. Uh, would you have kept him on as CEO? Well, it was a privately owned organization, so I don't think he was going to sell it. So it's hard for me to say. But um, I would say that, uh, you know, he's obviously been a, a reasonably successful businessman. And uh, I'm sure... Um, you know, he wouldn't have wanted to be bought by anybody else. He likes his independence and his freedom. So I don't think that was a realistic chance of that ever happening. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you a question that you asked uh, PepsiCo uh, CEO Indra Noy on your TV show. Is it harder to be a CEO now than it was 10 years ago? And if so, why? Oh, I think it's much harder today because today you have much more scrutiny of what you're doing. Uh, it used to be the case that activist investors were not taken that seriously by boards. Now an activist can, with 1% or 2% of the stock, really change who the CEO might be or change the direction of the company. I think the uh, scrutiny uh, in terms of uh, everybody on social media watching what every company is doing all the time is much greater than it used to be. Uh, the uh, rewards can be greater, but the penalties can be greater. So I think it's much tougher. You know, in the 1950s, uh, CEOs, basically, they got the job and they could stay until they were ready to retire. And the challenge to them just didn't exist. Activist investors didn't really uh, exist. Hedge funds didn't really exist. So it was a much easier environment then for the CEO. I'd like to get your take on uh, what's called the glass cliff phenomenon. I don't know if you've uh, heard or read anything about that. Uh, it's it's the notion that females are often appointed as CEOs when for only when or especially when a firm is in trouble and they're the ones that get uh, pushed off the cliff uh, or shoved off. Um, I'm curious uh, on your take uh, for your take on women in leadership generally CEOs and and kind of where we stand now right. and where we're moving. 
Well, if you take the Fortune 500 companies, relatively few of those companies are run by women, certainly not anywhere close to the proportion of the population. So I'd say of the Fortune 500 probably today, less than 20 probably have female CEOs, something like that, maybe 25, but probably less than that. So proportion to the population, there should be more. Um, I don't know if it's, a, it's just that the, and the women that get those jobs are not probably getting them in maybe the best of times, as you suggest, but very often they might be getting them in the worst of times. But there are some women uh, CEOs who've done spectacular jobs in the organizations that they have run. So uh, Phoebe Novakovic, for example, has done a terrific job at General Dynamics. Marilyn Houston has done a spectacular job at Lockheed. I think um, Meg Whitman's done a very good job at, at Hewlett Packard. You know, I, I would say that uh, they are some that I, I come to mind that have done uh, really spectacular jobs. And of course, Indra Nui has done a great job at Pepsi. I've known her for quite a while, and I think she's done a spectacular job there. So the women that have been given chances, I think, have done good, good jobs. Women, when they don't do a good job, uh, probably uh, get more attention than when men don't do a good job. Uh, and there are many men who don't do wonderful jobs. Uh, I'm curious if you or Carlisle have had any interactions or history with Uber other than perhaps um, using the service? I wish I had more interaction with it. I remember a friend of mine, David Bonderman, who's from Texas Pacific Group, told me that he was investing in the company. I think TPG invested in it, and I think that David personally invested when the company had about a $3 billion market cap. And I said, David, you know, are you sure that company is really viable? And he said, well, to me, he said, it's growing at 40% a month. It's going to do pretty well. So I wish I I'm had I'm detecting a pattern here, I have to say, with you and right. ground floor investment opportunities. I, I yeah. wish mm -hmm. I was better at these things. I'm not that good mm -hmm. at it. Um, I think that Uber... Today, its last round was at $70 billion. Maybe it's worth $70 billion, maybe a little bit less now. I don't know for sure. But clearly, it's uh, the most valuable um, privately owned company right now that, in terms of a startup company. And uh, at some day, I'm sure that, that value will be liquefied. But I, I can't say that I'm an intimate with the company. We've looked at sometimes investing in some of its foreign affiliates, but we, did, we chose not to do so. Right. So talk for a minute um, about its CEO trouble. Recently, it finally settled on uh, a pick um, to replace uh, its founder CEO, Travis Kalanick. Uh, it was a public and rather stormy search. Um, it was a public and rather stormy last several months of Travis's tenure. Um, if Uber were your company to some degree, um, I'm curious how you would have thought about um, replacing him as CEO. I assume you would have replaced him as CEO. Just talk to me about that for a second. Well, I wasn't on the board, so I don't know all the dynamics of what happened, but um, he did step down. So once he stepped down, uh, the question is who's going to be the best person to replace him? And as, they, as it now has become public, there were three candidates in the end. Uh, Jeff Immelt, who's retiring as CEO of GE. Um, Meg Whitman, who is currently the CEO of uh, HPE, or formerly Hewlett-Packard, and then the person who did get the job, who is the current CEO of Expedia. Um, in the end, um, you know, they all seem to be very attractive candidates. I didn't have the insights about who might be the best for that particular uh, set of circumstances, but I think the board has an enormous amount of uh, money at stake because the people on the board are often the largest investors, and a company with a $70 billion market capitalization has got a big responsibility to investors. So, I think they weighed the choices very carefully. I suspect that uh, they've made a good decision, but I'm not on the inside. I really can't say. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about carried interest for a moment. Um, sure. For those who don't know much about it, um, let me ask you to, to 
offer maybe a, a quick primer on uh, okay. what it is, how it works, and why you have defended it, and then we'll talk about uh, efforts to um, to change the deduction. Okay, let me explain what it is. Uh, right now, when people invest in the private equity world or invest in the venture capital world, the, the general partner, Carlisle or Blackstone or Kleiner Perkins, um, is basically getting um, uh, to invest your money they give you your money back, and they give you 80% of your profits back and 20% of the profits earned uh, after you've gotten your money back and your fees back typically, and you've gotten 80% of the profits back, 20% stays with the general partner, and it's called a carried interest. Where did the phrase come from? Well, in the Middle Ages, Venetian ship owners would send their ships to Asia, and the people working on the ships, the workers, would carry back the spices, carry back the silks, and for carrying back the products back to the uh, Venice, they would have an interest in the profits, and that carried interest, as it turns out, fortuitously, was 20%. So this carried interest is 20%, and it's earned after the investors get a fairly good amount of money back already. So the question that has arisen is, what is the appropriate way to tax that 20%? Is it to be taxed at ordinary income tax rates, or is it to be taxed at uh, capital gains rates. And there's a difference in our country between ordinary and capital gains. Uh, the IRS has determined from the very beginning of this issue that with respect to energy, real estate, uh, venture capital, and private equity, the general partner is taking a risk in making this investment and, and, and on behalf of investors and putting a lot of time and energy and, and, and into it. And it's not really a compensation in the traditional salary sense. It's really a risk type of capital and undertaking. And for that reason, it's to be taxed at capital gains rates. Uh, many people in Congress and many people around the country who dare to, care to care, uh, comment on this have said that, well, it really is more like a fee that you're getting and not really a... a, a, a uh, uh, type of uh, um, risk capital, and therefore it should be taxed at ordinary rates. Congress is considering, uh, presumably, whether to address this issue or not in the tax reform bill that will, will be considered. It's been considered for some 10 years now, and Congress has concluded uh, to date that the risk being taken by the general partners is really more analogous to um, a, an investment that bears a capital gain type of tax um, uh, rate than an ordinary type of tax rate. And so that's the issue. Now, Carlisle and other private equity firms have uh, banded together to fight against a change in this tax law, which I understand it's, it's in your self-interest to do so. You can understand plainly, however, the other side, yes, including the, the argument uh, that there's a lot of tax money for the government being left on the table. You, you, you'd said at, um, in 2013 at a Credit Suisse forum, carried interest is really what the business, our business, has historically been about, producing distributions for your investors from good sales and IPOs and getting 20% of the profits for yourself. That's how we've really grown our business. So it's obviously a, an essential component of what you do, but play devil's advocate against yourself for a moment and or, and make the argument for why it might be good to, especially uh, at a time when tax revenues are not as high as they might ought to be, especially with entitlements and so on being what they are being due, why it might not be a bad idea to consider changing that rule? Well, I, it's hard for me to make that argument because it's so little, if the argument is relating to revenue, there's not that much revenue involved. So in the grand scheme of things, while the numbers are vary a bit, if you were to change the capital gains uh, rule with respect to carried interest over a 10-year period of time, you might pick up for the Treasury of the United States maybe something like 6 to $10 billion over 10 years. So 
these are the numbers of the people that want to change uh, carried interest. So in the grand scheme of something, when you're talking about um, trillions of dollars, it doesn't pick up that much revenue. The risk you have is this. Private equity, as I've mentioned, is headquartered really in the United States. It's been a wonderful thing for the pension funds in the United States, been a wonderful thing for the investors in these funds. Venture capital is headquartered in the United States. It's been a wonderful thing for the uh, investors in these companies and these companies. So why would you want to change a formula that seems to be working to pick up a relatively modest amount of revenue that isn't going to change um, anybody's real income or really going to make the, the government uh, have enormous amount of money? Now, if you were going to pick up a trillion dollars, that's one thing. But you're going to pick up maybe 8 to $10 billion, and it's a relatively small amount. I'm talking about the money you'd pick up if you were to change it with respect to private equity and venture capital. Right. And I should point uh, out that the bulk of the money that is collected um, or that would, would be collected in terms of uh, this really is the real estate industry. Probably 50 to 60 percent of carried interest taxation really relates to the real estate industry, not the private equity and venture capital industry. But even if you were to take them all together, I don't think it, it's probably worth hurting these industries, which are so important to our economy. So that's what the argument I would actually make for not making a change in it. <laughs> I, I think I, I understand the other argument. And I, I would say that, um, you know, everybody can debate how they want to debate it and Congress will consider it in the, in the course of the tax reform bill. Uh, I guess in your case particularly, um, one could argue that with all the money you've spent uh, philanthropically on national monuments and museums and historic documents, that you are kind of repatriating your earnings from the carried interest loophole right back into the federal budget, um, especially when you buy a document and put it on public display, and then you get the added tax break for the philanthropic donation. No, I don't. So, no, 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 no. Wait a second. Oh, you I, don't? I've never taken. I've never taken a tax deduction for anything like that. Um, Is that right? How come? Um, not for displaying documents, because when I give documents, I'm just putting them on display, and I still own them. So I'm not. I don't take a tax deduction for that. But if I, you know, if I put up money to repair the Washington Monument, the Washington Monument, let's say, yes, yeah. I can uh -huh. get a tax yeah. deduction for that. And yes, um, I guess you know you could say that I, 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 I give away more money than I can take tax deductions for. You can take. You can deduct about fifty percent of your income. Uh, on charitable deductions, and I give away far more than 50% every year. So I don't get the benefit every year of the money that I give away. So I'm not giving it away for the tax purpose. I'm giving it away because I think I owe something to the country, and that's what I'm trying to do with my money. I understand. And I don't mean to be particularly peevish here, but I'm just looking at this, the circle of these dollars that right. are earned and taken home with the carried interest uh, rate. And you could look at it as a sort of this is going to sound much worse than I mean it, but a kind of highbrow money laundering where you're getting extra money because of the tax code and then uh, donating a lot of it back to actual, you know, not the federal budget quite, but to national monuments. So well, you, there's you a could kind say of nice that about circle. any, for example, everybody in the United States has a deduction that relates to the health insurance. Your employer, for example, gives you health insurance, I presume, and you do not uh, take that uh, cost into your income. If you really wanted to pick up money, you would say, let's eliminate that, what I could call a loophole, and make sure everybody who gets health insurance, they get um, to pay income tax on the, money, the benefit being given to them. That would pick up $1.3 trillion over 10 years. So you could argue that everybody who gives away money is in effect doing the same thing. They're just taking a deduction and as a result are not not paying uh, tax on something that they're getting a benefit from. And they're kind of making a charitable deduction later for the money that they're saving. So everybody who gets some deduction is getting that benefit, home mortgage interest deduction or or, the, or other kinds of deductions. So you can, you know, you can play that 
kind of uh, view for virtually every deduction. And I think it's unfair to pick out um, the private equity people who've actually done a very good job for the United States in building this business from scratch. You could go over many other industries, which I think have run less good things for the United States. But anyway, that's my point well, of view. Well, it's also the case, as you mentioned earlier, that being wealthy and successful, especially as an investor, generally doesn't win you many fans among the public. That's just the way, that's just the way it is. Historically. Yeah? Um, yeah. You know, yeah. generally, wealthy people throughout the course of the last 1,000 or 2,000 years have not been generally the most popular people in any society. And so it's only in recent, you know, 100 years or so that philanthropy has become something of significance, and people have been able to change the image. I think many people who are very wealthy were unpopular, John D. Rockefeller being the classic person. Then he started giving away money, and he and his family, which became very large philanthropists, uh, changed the image of the Rockefeller family. And I think there's no doubt that there's some image benefit, I guess, by giving away money. People who give away dramatically amount, large amounts of money are probably interested in more than image because at some point your image can't get much better than it might already be. You really, really, really do something good for the country. So you can always attack people's motives, and nobody's perfect, and, and nobody um, you know, is... is uh, you know, uh, subject to not being criticized. But I would say on the main point that you made, made, I would say in my case, I am giving back money to my country because I came from very modest circumstances. My parents didn't have any money. They didn't have any education. I rose up with a last name like Rubenstein to be able to do what I did. And I do feel that I owe this country because I don't think I could have done this in other countries. And so I'm giving it back in this way and to education and to medical research. And if you, you can say that's money I wouldn't have had if the, if the tax rules were different. But I, I think that really is an unfair way to look at it. Um, I could actually say I'm not going to give back any money. And, you know, uh, that's just not the way I look at it. The, the, the dynamic you just described with your opportunity as an American, um, it, it makes me wonder if, uh, I, I think you've mentioned this before, but I know it's a fact that America uh, itself and Americans are kind of freakishly uh, philanthropic, um, much more than any other people in history and, and, and even currently we're world leaders. Do you think that is why um, it's kind of a, um, a, a kind of standard or a given that Americans tend to give is the, the notion that there is the opportunity to, to make it? When our country was first started, there was no money here. And so libraries, universities, hospitals had to be funded by the private sector because there wasn't a rich government putting up this money. Europe, by contrast, many of these services were paid by the government. So Europe didn't really get a tradition of people giving money out of their own pocket to support these kind of public causes. America has always had this tradition. In fact, when de Tocqueville came here and wrote his famous book on America, he pointed out that there were so many volunteer associations, everybody was part of them because people were giving back. So we've had this tradition in our country, which is extraordinary. In fact, today, of the people who have signed the Giving Pledge, about 170 million, 170 people around the world have signed it, I would say about 85% of them are from the United States. And that reflects the greater philanthropy that Americans are used to. In many countries, if you go to countries, very well-known countries, and say, would you give away 50% of your net worth <laughs> philanthropy? They look at you like you're crazy. And so the, there has been modest success in that effort. So Americans, I think, have a more philanthropic bent than, than many other people. And to some extent, the people who are the biggest donors are not the people of inherited wealth, though they give away a fair amount of money, but it's the people who made it on their own, who realize how lucky they were, as I feel I am, and how indebted they are to this country for making it possible. And so that's why I give away my money, because I want to thank the country for my good fortune. Excellent. Okay, I'm going to ask you a series of uh 
sort of lightning round quick questions that require only short answers, and we'll do them until we okay. run out of time. Does that sound okay? Fine. Um, in roughly 60 seconds, David, uh, describe what you actually do in a given day. On a given day, I try to meet with investors. I try to make a couple speeches to, about either investing or history or or philanthropy. I might do an interview for one of the projects I have. I will try to meet with uh, one of more of my colleagues in my firm. I will try to talk to my children. I will try to um, um, look at new philanthropic projects. I'll probably be in some investment committee meetings. I'll be in some uh, philanthropic uh, presentations, and I might chair a board meeting of one of the organizations I'm involved with. I'm exhausted listening to you. That's impressive. Um, Name a couple things about being CEO that you had no idea about until you became a CEO. Well, I didn't realize um, probably how much time I had to spend dealing with the uh, unit holders or shareholders, we call them unit holders, um, in our firm. And that's a very important factor. But I had been used to spending time with investors in our funds, but I now realize I have a whole new constituency, people that buy our stocks. So that's been something that's taken a fair amount of time. And how much regulatory and compliance matters are now involved. So it used to be the case that if you went public, you know, you filed with the SEC. But today, we have a large compliance operation in our firm, as everybody does. You have a large Sarbanes-Oxley kind of uh, uh, compliance uh, operation as well. So you have so many different things you have to comply with in order to uh, make certain that you're following all the rules and laws of the United States. So being a public company is not for people that uh, are the faint-hearted. You really have to put a lot of time into uh, dealing with compliance, regulatory matters, and and public uh, shareholder-related issues. I think a lot of people from the outside look at a company CEO and imagine all the perks. Uh, but tell me, is it lonely at the top on some dimension? I wouldn't say lonely because the people always want to get a piece of you. So it's not lonely because people always come to you for something. Um, it's the other way around. It's hard to get a, get away from everything. Um, it's hard to get to be lonely because it's hard to get away from people who want to call you and so forth. In the old days, I would say the 1950s or 60s, when no emails existed, when there were no tweets, when and when you didn't have as much uh, – uh, uh, opportunity to communicate with people, it might have been a lot easier to be the CEO. Today, it's very hard to get away and to escape because you're emailing uh, people all the time. And I know I find sometimes when I decide that I'm busy in something, I'm not going to respond to emails for two or three hours. I get emails a second time saying, well, what's wrong? You don't eat like me anymore? How come you're not responding? <laughs> Even it's been an hour before I responded, perhaps. <laughs> people want immediate responses and, and, and so forth. And I get my, myself upset sometimes if I send an email to somebody and I don't get a response for four or five hours. I think maybe they don't love me anymore. So there's no <laughs> doubt that you can't really be alone anymore. Um, you, you're so connected. And I just wonder that when my time comes and I am put underground, six feet under, whether I will still be getting emails and whether how I'm going to respond to them. I don't know how, my, how long people will wait before they realize I'm not really alive to respond anymore. Maybe I should have somebody keep responding and say, well, he's he, this is what he would have said if he's still alive. <laughs> uh, I can see an app for that, actually, which you could probably be involved in the creation of. But um, I don't know I'll if look that's at worth it. your time. All right. Um, let me ask you this uh, question, not about yourself as CEO, but as CEOs of other firms. Um, how much does the CEO really matter to the firm and how can you tell? I believe a CEO matters a lot more than I probably thought before. 
because in all the companies Carlisle's invested in, I think the CEO has made the, the most amount of difference. I think the price we paid is probably the second most, and the quality of the company we invested in was probably the third most. CEOs can make a dramatic amount of difference. Now, I wouldn't say I'm the greatest CEO in the Western world, so I wouldn't say that I've made that much of a difference. I have a co-CEO at Carlisle, and I think he has done a spectacular job and probably done a much better job than I have done. But I think CEOs can make a difference, and I think, um, you know, if you told me you had a reasonably good company, a terrible CEO, I wouldn't invest in it. If you told me you had a reasonably good company and a great CEO, I certainly would invest in it. Mm -hmm. What for you has been the best way to learn about the way the world actually works? Is it reading? Is it talking to people? Is it thinking big thoughts on a mountaintop? My um, greatest interest in life is in keeping my brain active. And so I love reading. I love reading newspapers. I'm a fossil in that regard. I love um, going to bookstores and buying the books and reading them by holding the books. I love um, um, actually talking to people and interviewing people so I can learn. You know, I, I want to keep my gray matter as active as possible. I have a theory that if you retire, um, you know, you're, you're downhill quickly. And I have a theory that if you relax too much, your immune system relaxes. Germs come in and they see a relaxing immune system. They attack and all of a sudden you're in trouble. So I don't ever like to slow down. I don't want to relax too much because I'm afraid that bad things will happen. So I just love what I'm doing. My biggest concern is I'm now 68 years old and actuarial tables being what they are, it's unlikely that I'll live another 68 years and maybe not even another 38 years and who knows how many more years I'll live. So I wish I had all the the resources I have, the access, the willingness to, um, to, to, to do the kind of things I can do and the ability to do the kind of things I do when I was 37. I would give away all the money I have today, every penny, if I could be five years younger. Mm, just five years, really? That's quite a, uh, an arbitrage. Well, I asked um, Bill Gates that. I said, would you give away all your money if you could be five years younger? And he said, well, geez, I don't know. Maybe could I do 10 years? So he was negotiating a bit. But, uh, you know, clearly, you know, why would anybody not give away all their money to be able to live five years longer? Life is so pleasurable. Even if you're not wealthy, you know, money doesn't necessarily make you happy. The, um, some of the saddest people I know are the wealthiest people I know. And some of the poorest people I know are some of the happiest people I know. You know, Thomas Jefferson said, life is about the pursuit of happiness. But he didn't tell us how to actually get happiness. And it's the most elusive thing in life is personal happiness. Very few people achieve it. I think I'm personally happy. But you know, I, I think I was happy before I was wealthy. So, you know, I don't know that the wealth has made me happier. Uh, related to the time question, if you had a time machine, uh, when would you travel to and why? What would you do there? Well, if I could go anywhere, I'm back in time. I, of course, would like to go back to the Revolutionary War period of time and meet the, the founding fathers and see what they were really like. Maybe they would be disappointing when I got to know them. Um, obviously, <laughs> going back to the to the uh, the beginning of uh, several millennium and, and being at the time of that uh, that uh, Jesus Christ was born and uh, to living through that period of time and and uh, that would be quite quite interesting as well. Um, I going to the future. You know, clearly I'd love to see what life would be like 100 years from now or 200 years from now or 1,000 years from now. I can't possibly imagine what it would be like, but that would be worth uh, a great deal of, 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 of uh, pleasure to me. Do you think much about the future and the future of labor? That's a big conversation, obviously, with automation and AI and the future of, um, you know, whether, whether people will need to work and how we pay for things. 
It clearly will be different. Nobody could have anticipated 100 years ago the kind of things we have today. Even 10 years ago, uh, people couldn't have anticipated the kind of things we now have. So i sure in the future, work will be much different. Maybe people will get compensated differently. Maybe people will not have to work 40 hours a week if that's a traditional measurement of how much work you put in. But clearly, uh, I think humans have a desire to, to do things and not just sit around and, and, and lounge around. So I suspect the work will change and how people work will be will be viewed differently. But, you know, I, I wish I could be around 100 years or 200 years from now mm. to see it. What do you collect and why? I have not historically been a collector because I didn't think I had the time to really do it and maybe the patience and maybe the um, exacting nature of personality to kind of do it. But when I bought the Magna Carta, I then realized that that was an unusual thing to own. And then other historic documents like the... the um, Emancipation Proclamation or rare copies of Declaration of Independence or the 13th Amendment came to me and so I would buy them. Or I bought the the first book ever printed in the United States or I bought the first map ever printed in the United States. Things that relate to Americana, I, I bought that. I do have a collection of historic American books and I own a large number of very important uh, historic books that um, I ultimately will give to a major library. And I do have some other things that, you know, I collect in the art world a little bit. But basically, uh, my main collection are historic documents, American historic documents. What was the first book ever printed in the United States? It's called the Bay Psalms Book, printed in 1640. Uh, the first printing press was brought here in 1638. This was the first book printed. There are about seven copies. One was auctioned off uh, a couple years ago, and I won it, and I, um, I I paid the highest price ever paid for a book. I'm not sure I'm happy to wow. brag about that. <laughs> uh, but but um, it, it's now on display. I think it's about to be put on display at the Smithsonian. It's been on display at the Library of Congress and at uh, Rare Book Library at Duke University, and it will be on display at other places as well. Wow. Uh, where do you get your haircut, and how much do you spend? I get my haircut, which requires me to do so less than I did when I was younger, because <laughs> I have less hair than I did when I was younger. But I get it at a neighborhood barbershop, um, and uh, I think the price is $15 and a $5 tip. So $20, and um, um, you know it's relatively inexpensive. I, it seems like they're undervaluing their services, but uh, you know I, I can't tell them to, to charge more. All right. You've been very generous with your time, and I've already kept you a little long, so I'll ask you one, one and a half more questions. Here's the one real one. Uh, what's something, David Rubenstein, that you believed uh, for a long time to be true until you found out that you were wrong? Well, I thought, um, you know, early on that I was extremely handsome, and then I found that I was wrong. I thought I was a great athlete, then I realized I was not very good at that. I thought that women were extremely attracted to me, and then I realized that was not the case. I thought I was a great parent, and then I probably realized I wasn't as great as I thought I was. So uh, many things I aspired to be, and I turned out not to be as, as great as I would have wanted to be. Uh, on the whole, though, I'm pretty happy with where I turned out to be. I'm not that handsome, not as smart as I want to be, not as great a, a, a parent probably as I'd like to be. But on balance, um, given where I started, I'm reasonably happy with where I am today. I just wish I was younger and, um, you know, able to be on your show more times than just once. Mm. And you're probably, you know, you may have um, downgraded yourself in all those categories, but you're humbler, obviously, than it might have turned out, right? If you really thought humility you were so is great. a it's an important virtue i am not a person that likes arrogance i think humility gets you a lot further than arrogance but in my case it's not false humility because i actually realize i'm not that handsome not that smart <laughs> not that great an athlete 
Uh, the only good thing about my athletic skills is this. When I was younger, a lot of my friends were very good athletes, and they became All-American athletes, particularly in lacrosse. I'm from Baltimore, and lacrosse is a big sport. Now they have artificial knees. They have artificial hips. I didn't wear my body out. And so now when I play tennis against these former All-Americans, I can run them off the court because I have, my body is still intact. So that's one of the great pleasures of my athletic life. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, lastly, I just want to ask if there's anything we left out of the conversation that you'd really like to like to say, anything you would have liked to have been asked or anything you'd like to add? Well, I would say that um, the, my favorite book of the last 20 years is Freakonomics. Now, I don't know who wrote that book, but it's a great book. And if you ever meet the author of that book, I'd like to meet that person. <laughs> I'll, I'll let him know I run into. All right. It was uh, just a pleasure. I learned a lot. And I know, um, I know our audience will love it, too. So thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. In next week's special episode, you'll hear my full conversation with Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft. He's an engineer by training, and learning how to manage people didn't come naturally. At whatever, 25, when I was interviewing and somebody says, what would you do if you, you see a baby on the street uh, crying and after having fallen down? Uh, I answered with, you know, thinking this is some trip question. Maybe there is some algorithm that I'm missing uh, and said, I'll call 911 uh, only to have uh, that manager, wake, you know, get up and <laughs> walk me out of the room saying, you know, that's the absolute bullshit answer. Uh, and if, if you see a baby falling down, you pick them up and hug them. And I was devastated because I remember thinking about it and I said, how could I not get that? Also, please keep your ears out for our regular Freakonomics Radio episodes, which hit your podcast stream promptly at 11 p.m. Eastern Time on Wednesdays. Thanks for listening. Freakonomics Radio is produced by WNYC Studios and Dubner Productions. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Greg Rosalski, Stephanie Tam, Max Miller, Merritt Jacob, Vera Carruthers, Harry Huggins, and Brian Gutierrez. The music you hear throughout our episodes was composed by Luis Guerra. You can subscribe to Freakonomics Radio on Apple Podcasts or any number of podcast portals. You should also check out our archive at Freakonomics.com where you can stream or download every episode we've ever made. You can also read the transcripts and find links to the underlying research. Our show can also be heard on NPR stations across the country. Check your local station for the schedule. And we can be heard on Sirius XM, Spotify, even your better airlines. We can also be found on Twitter, Facebook, or via email at radio at Freakonomics.com. Thanks for listening. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah, the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Meet Gail. Her thing is being a supermom. And Supermom has a lot on her supersized plate. <laughs> Ain't that the truth. But at Walmart Pharmacy, Supermom recently got her whole family updated on all their vaccines. We knocked it out during a grocery run. No appointment. That's Next Level Supermom.
From pneumonia to shingles, HPV, and more, get no-cost vaccinations from an expert pharmacist where you already shop. Welcome to an easier pharmacy. Welcome to your Walmart. $0 copay with most insurances. State age and health restrictions may apply. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.